Welcome to another episode of Christian Combatives, the podcast. Today we're going to be answering questions that are posted on Christcord, the Christian Discord server. That is discord.gg forward slash Christian, discord.gg forward slash Christian. One of the benefits of this server is that you have a place where Christians can can have interactions with one another. You can have you can have Christians that you can talk to from different denominations. You can learn more about different denominations. You can also learn more about your own denomination. But an added benefit to this is this is also a place where non-Christians or other religions can come and ask questions about Christianity. And people who are perhaps new in the faith can ask questions about Christianity. Now, obviously, uh, I don't want to advertise this server as a place where um, we're not Christian. You just join up and you start evangelizing people and say, hey, join my my weird, crazy cult or, you know, join join uh, Islam or join, you know, whatever and, and try to convert people from Christianity to your own religion. But that being said, uh, it is a place where we have plenty of non-Christians who, who hang out and kind of get get to learn more about Christianity, even if it does not ultimately lead to them being converted. They end up knowing more about that which they disagree, with which they disagree. Anyways, I'm going to get right into it. Um, one of the sections we have on Christcord is called the Ask Christians Forum. And in this section, this is a place where people can post questions and, and various representatives from, from different denominations and different religion, well, different denominations within Christianity can all take a stab at answering. And this is done, uh, from what I've seen, this is done fairly well, and uh, and I don't want to override any of the question or any of the answers that are given by any of the Christian representatives. This is the first time I've read any of these questions. I'm going to try to address them, address them off the cuff. So let's get into it. All right, first question we have: the asker says, probably a stupid question. As a Christian, is it immoral to listen to certain artists, for example, Lady Gaga? Now. This is, this is an argument that some people get into about distinguishing between the art and the artist. Is it, is it possible to enjoy somebody's art without, you know, uh, necessarily supporting the artist? For example, there are plenty of, of artists who have painted and, and, and made music and written stories and stuff that, that aren't Christian, and many who are very anti-Christian in their beliefs. Now, it isn't necessarily sinful to say well, here's this non-Christian who produced a thing that I enjoy. Uh, in the Bible, you have examples even as far as, as and meat merchants. And the idea with these meat merchants is what they would do is they would sacrifice the meat to idols, to anti-Christian pagan gods. And the Christians, many Christians would be concerned about this. They'd say, well, are we allowed to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Uh, and, and this is, I would say that this is a more extreme example than, for example, listening to an artist who, who isn't Christian uh, yet produces art. Uh, in this case, you're directly interacting with something that is a direct worship of the idol. And in the Bible, it says, yes, it's okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. That being said, if there is somebody who's tr whose conscience is troubled by it, don't trouble their conscience further. If their conscience is troubled by eating meat sacrificed to idols, or in this case, if somebody's conscience is troubled by listening uh, to particular artists or or seeing movies and, and images and stuff from particular artists that, that uh, are anti-Christian even, then then don't, you know, force them, say, ha, ah, you have Christian freedom, therefore you have to, you have to listen to Lady Gaga. Now, this this all uh, sidesteps the, the, the content, the content of the art. The content of the art really dictates this sort of thing. Uh, in some cases, art is you know, more, more or less neutral. Sometimes even atheists, even pagan artists can pick up on the, on the beauty of, of God's 
of God's creation. And they can display this beauty in, in wonderful ways that we can appreciate and look and say, look at this, the harmonies here, you know, the, the, the mechanics and, uh, and the mathematics behind the music, just the, the music itself is, is beautiful. And this beauty is a reflection of the beauty of God's creation. We can listen to it and appreciate it like that. That being said, many times artists specifically create things f- for for sinful reasons, whether it's things that are you know uh, inappropriate to be watching or listening to, whether it's things that are encouraging violence and, and sin and sexuality uh, in in ways that aren't God pleasing. In, in any of these ways, then you start running into a different problem. It's one thing if you listen to you know a con- a concerto composed by a composer who is an atheist and the entire thing is just you know wind instruments and and piano and and violin and all this other stuff and you listen to to it and you say yeah this is beautiful music it's another thing if you're listening to music which is specifically calling you to sin specifically glorifying sin now this is something that comes up a lot when people ask about is it a sin to play violent video games is it a sin to play Dungeons and Dragons because, you know, there's violence and there's sorcery and there's magic and, and demons and stuff in Dungeons and Dragons. Is it a sin to watch to watch violent movies? And again, uh, the Bible never explicitly lays out and says, look, you know, it's a sin to watch this movie, it's a sin to play this video game, this kind of thing. But the question is, is it glorifying evil? Are you glorifying evil? Are you getting entertainment from the glorification of evil? Uh, one of the examples that a lot of people tend to use a lot, and I think it's a bit absurd, but uh, it, it kind of makes the point, is, is is the Doom games. And in the concept of the Doom games, you play as the Doom guy, or the Doom Marine, or the Doom Slayer, whatever whatever game, they call them something different. And the whole concept is this guy goes, and, and, he, and he goes, and he butchers every demon in hell, basically. And in this in this case, it's not the glorification of evil. It's an extremely violent series of games. But the concept of the game is not, I'm going to do evil. Now, you run into something like uh, like Grand Theft Auto, for example, where where you could, I mean, I suppose you could avoid crimes, you could stop at every stoplight or whatever, but a large portion of the game is centered around the glorification of evil. I'm stealing from people, I'm killing people, I'm hiring prostitutes, I'm doing all these things, and, and this is where I'm deriving my entertainment from. It's the fantasy of sin. Now, in that case, I think you've got a lot harder case to make to say, well, I can do this neutrally, I can do this, I can glorify God while playing something that glorifies evil. Now, if you want to make a distinction and say, well, I'm just experiencing the universe of this, you know, this horrible, this horrible character. I mean, in some of the Grand Theft Auto, in, I'll use an example, uh, Red Dead Redemption. Well, the main character is, the whole concept of the game is is that he's struggling, that he's doing evil stuff. Now, as the character, you are performing evil actions, but ultimately, it's not necessarily the glorification of those evil actions. If you pay attention to the story, you could play the game and say, haha, it's fun to just shoot people, or you could play the game and say, wow, this is, you know, this is an interesting moral conundrum. Uh, This main character, he's, he's struggling with good versus evil. So back to the question of, is it a, is it immoral to listen to certain artists? Um, it, it depends on a couple factors. One, what are the artists creating? What is the intention behind the art? What are you deriving from the art? What is the content of the art? Um, two, what does your conscience tell you? It's, it's neither, you know, right nor safe to go against your conscience. If, if your conscience is telling you, look, this person is engaged in, in very blatant sin and promoting sin, uh, and I just cannot listen. If I'm listening to this music, then I'm supporting them through some extension, uh, and that bothers your conscience. Then just 
Don't do it. You're free in Christ not to do it. And the fallback for all of this is, let's say you try to do the right thing and you're wrong. You end up committing uh, committing a sin anyway. Well, your solution here is not, you know, going back in time and uh, and not listening to any artist who has ever who has ever you know produced sinful content. The solution is Christ and the cross. Christ and Him crucified. It's the forgiveness of sins. So look look at. I hesitate to say this. Look within yourself. Look at your conscience. Is your conscience being troubled by listening to certain artists? If so, then don't do it. There's no reason that you need to trouble your conscience. And there's plenty of other artists out there. Even if you miss out on some uh, absolute bangers, um, I mean, it's it's more than made up for it by by the by the relief that your conscience feels. Ultimately, it's it's on the forgiveness of Christ on the cross. That should be your focus. You can't avoid all sin. You should try to avoid sin, but inevitably you're going to fail. And in those such cases, in all such cases, your hope should be on, on Christ and Him crucified. And that should ultimately be your comfort. All right, I'm going to move on to the next question. Uh, this question says... I have been struggling with cursing and swearing. I've, I've stopped the habit of saying some words, but I'm unsure if it's a sin to say things like Jesus. I've also uh, never been to church before, and we're visiting different churches, etc., etc. I need to know the proper etiquette for various churches. I'm just going to address the, the cuss words thing first. Um, it, it, it's, it's good to practice self-control in terms of speech. This is, this is one of the more difficult things to do, especially if you de- you've developed a pattern of speaking. Uh, I, I speak from experience. Uh, my time in the Marine Corps, I developed quite, quite a, uh, quite a vocabulary, uh, quite a colorful vocabulary, and and I'm saying this not to brag, but saying this to show that this was it was so, it was so pernicious, it was so constant that I would be punctuating my sentences with all kinds of cuss words. And this is, I mean, my excuse at the time was, oh, this was how everybody around me was talking. I was adapt- adopting the vernacular of the people around me. And that's not necessarily an excuse. But the result of this was that I developed a way of speaking where vulgarity was so common that I actually had difficulty stopping, uh, stopping, not just vulgar, well, stopping the vulgarity. Um, for some reason, I had, I had made it in my mind a distinction between uh, blasphemy and vulgarity. I suppose there is a distinction between using um, using inappropriate language and using language that is is blasphemous, uh, saying things like "Oh my God" and "God damn it" and things like that. Um, these are there is a distinction I would say between that and, and and other words that are you know you shouldn't be you shouldn't be speaking in that way or speaking about those things. Now for me the struggle was to to stop this and it took three years of intentional work to stop myself from punctuating my sentence from 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 even the odd the odd swear word seeping its way into the conversation the the result of this was an interesting interaction with the marines around me is that that they noticed that i was specifically avoiding using curse words and of course you know they would joke about it and stuff but that wasn't my my job wasn't to impress them i wasn't doing that to impress them i was doing them doing that because i become so reliant on the on the vulgarity that that it that it had taken over me. I wasn't a I wasn't disciplining my own body. I wasn't disciplining my own speech. And the Bible calls us to discipline both our body and our speech. So in the sense of in the sense of cuss words, in the sense of words that you say, they're just kind of interjections that you throw out there without meaning. Uh, it's a good idea to to moderate your language, to be in control of your language, um, even if this means people around you notice that you're speaking differently. In 
in the case of in the case of uh, using blasphemous language, even using even using the name like Jesus and using that as an interjection, that's that's there's not really an excuse for that. I mean, I know that people get used to saying "Oh my God" or just shouting out Jesus or Jesus Christ or something like that, and they get used to it. They get used to treating something holy as a swear word. I mean, God tells us not to take His name in vain. And that means a bunch of different things, but included in that is taking the name of the Lord your God, Jesus, and using it as an interjection. I mean, there's a pretty serious warning that's, that's associated with this commandment, that God will not hold him blameless who takes the name of the Lord in vain. So struggling with it is, is good. You should struggle with it. It shouldn't be something that you just casually say, well, everybody says it, so I don't care. Uh, no, struggle against your sin, struggle in disciplining yourself, uh, struggle in your faith, and hopefully hopefully grow. But again, as I said in the last question, ultimately fall back on Christ, Christ and Him crucified. He forgives sins. He even forgives these sins. This is important that we trust in the forgiveness of Christ uh, for this. All right, next question we have. Uh, somebody asks about temptation. He says, how do I beat lustful temptations in the past? And now, uh, and now I've had trouble with this, and I want to know some tips for beating this for me and for others struggling. Um, uh, again, I want to reiterate that I'm not the first person answering these questions. This is my first time answering and even seeing these questions, but on the server there are plenty of people who've put some very, very good advice and very, very good answers to a lot of these questions. So one of the benefits uh, on, on Christ's course is you can just scroll through them and, and kind of read them, even if you're not the one who answered the question, or who asked the question, rather. In the case of in the case of temptation, um, discipline goes a long way. Starting up habits, practicing habits. Some people find different ways to kind of control to control temptation. Some people find it in accountability partners, in in um, going to confession and absolution regularly, in being very intentional about their about their. Uh, behavior. Uh, some people put up actual barriers. So if something is automatic, you're more likely to do it. If you fall into a temptation, uh, I use an example of if I have a bag of chips sitting in front of me, I'm more likely to eat it than if I have to go out of my house, go drive down to the store, buy a bag of chips, drive back, and then eat them. If it's readily available, it's more likely that you're going to fall victim to the temptation. Uh, in this case, that can that can be helpful. Uh, and, and you kind of put barriers in it. And once you're driving to the store to buy yourself a bag of potato chips, then, I mean, then it's an intentional action. Uh, you can you can have more control over your intentional actions than your unintentional habits. Uh, and the more you can make things intentional, the, the, the better. The problem is that inevitably people continue to fall into temptation time and time again. Martin Luther talked about, uh, I think, he talked about the distinction of, of you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop a bird from making a nest in your hair. It's one thing to struggle against temptation, and it just keeps happening, and you keep falling into sin over and over and over again. It's another thing to wallow in your sin and say, well, I can't resist it, so why bother? And that's not somewhere you want to be. The life of the Christian, unfortunately, is one of struggle against sin, uh, against, against the world, against our flesh. Our sinful nature against the devil. Uh, temptation is constantly going to afflict the Christian. In different ways, different Christians experience different temptations to different degrees and in different ways. But they're going to continue to struggle. And your struggle is not a sign that you're not a Christian. Your struggle is a sign that you 
do have faith. Because if you didn't have faith and you didn't struggle with it, well, you know, you wouldn't care. You're like, well, I sin, but I don't have faith, so why would I, why would I stop sinning? The struggle is actually a good sign, even though it's, it's more uncomfortable than just kind of lying and, you know, wallowing like a, like, like a, pit in a, a pig in a puddle of mud. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to keep climbing out of these puddles that you keep falling into. But that's, that's what you're called to do as a Christian. Once again, I fall back on what I said in the previous two questions. Trust in Christ for forgiveness. The solution is, is not you stopping sin. Because you're never going to stop sin completely. The solution is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, forgives you for your sins. Now go and sin no more, even if you ultimately will sin. Uh, desire to stop sinning as a result of being forgiven for your sin. Your forgiveness comes first. Your justification, some might call it, and your sanctification, your ability to resist sin, comes as often as a consequence of your forgiveness of sins. All right, there's another question about cuss words. It's kind of the same that we dealt with before. It's more about, you know, what is a, what is a cuss word? What, what counts? Um, and there's some examples. Anything that you're misusing the name of God and you're blaspheming, you're, you're claiming, uh, or you're saying that God should damn things, uh, any of that is, is, is blasphemy. Uh, anything in terms of vulgarity is, is a bit harder to define because in some societies, in some languages, some words are more offensive than others. There are some topics you don't talk about. That's a lot more difficult to define. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. A lot of it is, is culturally dependent. You have to be aware of, of, in your culture, what are you speaking of? Are you speaking of something crude? Or are you speaking of something in a crude manner? Um, and, yeah, rely on your conscience heavily, but rely even more heavily on the forgiveness of Christ. All right, next question. Why is monotheism a better worldview than polytheism? Um, the person posting the question says, on the surface, it appears arguments can be made for polytheism. Uh, almost every typical argument against God, like the problem of evil, is answered by polytheism almost easier than monotheism. Putting together the theological and distheological arguments seems to favor a polytheistic view. Universe that is designed by flawed designers, arguments from a personal experience, miracles, faith, etc., etc. seem to work better in a polytheistic view. Uh, worlds of many gods, uh, and because of that, the miracles from different religions because their gods are real. So the reason monotheism works better than polytheism is because monotheism is the truth. I mean, the fact of the matter is that it's we're not trying to find what system works best. We're trying to figure out what the truth is. That is that is ultimately what theology is. What is the truth? What is real? Uh, is there a God? Is there a creator? Is there a divine essence? What is there? Who is it? Questions like this. Uh, it, this is not this is not something where where mutually exclusive realities can all kind of compete with one another and and each be equally right. Um, this is this is a question about truth. So in this case, why is monotheism a better worldview than polytheism? Because there is only one God, and polytheism is you know it, it'd be an interesting fantasy, but it's not it's not true. Now humans throughout history have come up with all kinds of different sort of fantasy explanations for things. There's all kinds of stories that were written that, that ask questions like, you know, what if it was like this instead of like the way it actually is? C.S. Lewis does this uh, wonderfully. Well, I don't want to say wonderfully. I actually hated the books. I thought they were incredibly boring. Um, in his space trilogy, uh, basically you've got this concept where 
Adam and Eve, uh, Adam and Eve and God and the devil and all these other things, that this happens on Venus as well as on, on Earth. And on Venus, they don't fall victim to, um, to sin. They don't commit the sin, and as a result, they have a perfect existence on, on Venus. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a cool sort of story. Uh, people have asked, you know, what if questions, you know, what if Jesus was actually born here? Or what if, you know, but the reality is, why is one better than the other? Because one is true and the other isn't. Uh, you know, people come up with examples in human biology, for example. Uh, one of the biggest ones was the appendix. The appendix in human biology, people for the longest time said, you know, what's the point in this vestigial organ? I mean, it must be left over from evolution because it doesn't actually do anything. And people, you know, get sick and people are better off without it. Well, later on, they find out that it does actually serve some very important biological functions. And even though people can survive without appendices, uh, it's actually healthier for them to have functional a functional appendix. So people would ask the question, say, well, if God was real, then he wouldn't have made it so people could get cancer. If God was real, then he wouldn't have made it so, you know, people have vestigial organs. If God was real, then he would have made wisdom teeth fit in the in the job. There are all these kind of, you know, if I was God, I would do things differently type questions. And and again, it's it's an exercise in fantasy, but the question of theology is is truth. Could you come up theoretically with a better worldview uh, of polytheism than monotheism? I mean, I suppose, but this is only because we don't fully understand. Um, we don't fully understand why God did the things that he did. If we fully understood the reality, the, the fullness of God's creation and, and his mind behind it, I don't think we could, come, we could come up with a better system than him. He's just, he's got more experience, uh, more expertise in that, uh, in that area than we do. Okay, next question. The atonement and salvation. Uh, beliefs outside Christianity seem to agree that some of the Bible contained contradictory statements as if it was edited. No biblical scholar on earth will claim that the Bible was written by Jesus himself, since it was not. Uh, so far, so good. Um, although I, I disagree about the contradiction. Uh, well, I'll get into that later. Um, they all agree that it was written after the departure of Jesus. Peace be upon him. Oh, I know they were listening to the person writing this. They all agree that it was written after the departure of Jesus. Uh, peace be upon him. Uh, by his followers, a simple Google search and some reading can show you multiple contradictions in the Bible. Yeah, the the problem the problem with that I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. The problem with the you Google contradictions in the Bible, but you don't ever Google the uh, the solutions to the contradictions. If you just Google what are some biblical contradictions, and then you're like, haha, I found some, and nobody can resolve these. Uh, use Google a second time and search for, you know, how they are explained. I mean, you'll get all kinds of answers from from Catholic resources, from from Got Questions or Got Christianity or whatever. I don't ask Christianity. There's a whole bunch of, like, Baptist, Reformed, Lutheran. Like, everybody's taking a stab at answering these questions. So there's more than enough answers for all of these contradictions in the Bible. Uh, so if you're diligent enough to Google, are there contradictions in the Bible, you are capable to Google what are the solutions to each individual ones. Anyways, I'll let the question continue. He says, I'm assuming it's a him. He says, I have a few questions. Firstly, the simple question you may have heard multiple times. Why did Jesus die for people's sin? It doesn't really make much sense, sense how he died for the sins when it was pretty obvious mankind was going to sin. If your answer is just because he loves us, then why didn't he just let us all into heaven because Jesus is God and Christians can go to heaven because he loves us? Okay, and then he goes on to another question from there. So I'm going to stop right there. The reason that Jesus died for sins rather than just kind of ignoring sins is because if Jesus, if God ignored sins, then that would make him an unjust God. It would be a debt that was not paid. Jesus had to die for sins for a multitude of reasons. There's actually multiple reasons why Jesus died on the cross and, and what this does in terms of putting us in reconciliation with the Father. 
Um, one of the reasons is that there is a debt that is incurred as a result of sin. Now, a just judge will not overlook a debt and say, well, I love the person who committed the debt, therefore it doesn't count. But in this case, what the judge did is the judge paid the debt himself. So the reason that Jesus had to die for sins, I mean, among other things, one of the reasons Jesus had to die for sins is because a debt was incurred and a debt incurred must be paid in a just system. God is a just God. Therefore, justice had to be served. So Jesus died on the sin or died on the cross for, for the sins of mankind. And he did this because, because he, he loves us. And there's other reasons, of course, too. I mean, we never would be able to pay for the debt incurred by our own sin. But, um, yeah, anyways, uh, I think that hopefully sufficiently addresses that question. He says, another question is that the Christian scholars claim that Christianity teaches that all Christians go to heaven. That's the case. Surely I could convert to Christianity tomorrow then go on a killing spree and just do it, uh, just do absolutely diabolical sins. And I would still go to heaven regardless since I'm a Christian and Jesus died for my sins. Uh, I'm going to stop here right there. The Roman Catholics are jumping up and down in their seat and they're, they're screaming the word, the words mortal sins, mortal sins. And Lutherans actually would use the terms mortal sins as well. Um, in the perspective of a, of a Roman Catholic, and they can correct me if I'm wrong on this, in the perspective of a Roman Catholic, they would say that there are some sins that you do that just are not forgivable sins. Uh, not, not, not that Jesus didn't die for them, but that they, that as a Christian, if you commit the sin, it puts you outside of salvation. Uh, the way the Lutheran would explain the concept of a mortal sin, um, first of all, a Lutheran would say, you know, there's mortal sins and there's venial sins. Venial sins are sins that Christians commit and are forgiven, and they never lose their salvation uh, even when they commit these sins. But any venial sin that is not repentant, is not repented for, uh, that the Christian is not sorry for, is not forgiven. Uh, and any unforgiven venial sin turns out to be a mortal sin. Uh, every venial sin is damnable if the person is not repentant of the sin. And that was one uh, distinction that Lutherans like to make. But in the sense of mortal sins, there are some sins that we would say, as a Christian, you would not be able to simultaneously have faith and commit these atrocities knowingly. Now, it's one thing if, you know, it's it's manslaughter, you accidentally hit somebody with a car or whatever. So as a Christian, you, you know, you, you kill somebody for, through negligence or whatever. But as a Christian... We would say that it's actually impossible for a Christian to simultaneously retain their faith and commit such horrible atrocities against God's creation and against God himself. So no, a Christian could not go and commit a bunch of murders and hold on to his salvation, um, particularly if he's, you know, saying, well, I'm going to repent of this this later. Well, repentance isn't just saying I'm sorry. Repentance is, is, a, change of, is a change of heart. Uh, it's, it's changing from, from, I want to do this to, I wish I hadn't done that. Now, there, there's another, there's another version of this. It's the, it's the Bart Simpson version where, where you spend your whole life sinning and then on your deathbed, you convert to Christianity and all your sins are forgiven. And that is, I mean, it is something that could potentially happen. There are plenty of people who, who they don't, they're not brought to faith until the end of their life. But the reality is if you spent your whole life in a pattern, you spent your whole life resisting God and hardening your heart again and again and again and again, why are you so confident that you can genuinely repent after all of that? Uh, are, do you think that just saying I'm sorry counts as repentance? It, it, it doesn't. You know, preparing in advance to repent is an indicator that this isn't actually repentance. You're saying, well, I'm going to repent in the future. Are, are you though, really? Like, what exactly does that, does that look like? If your plan is to commit sin and then to get away with it by slapping a magical I'm sorry band-aid on it, then that isn't really repentance. 
It's difficult to say, I'm going to regret this in the future, yet I plan to do it right now. Now, uh, the tragic reality is that many Christians struggle with sin, and they say, well, I know that this is a sin, and I end up doing it anyway, and I know that it's a sin while I do it, and they could still be repented of it and struggle with the sin as they commit the sin. But in such cases where it's so intentional, like, I'm going to go murder people, something like that, I, I there's just, I mean, logically, there just isn't a situation where the person can say, I'm going to actively and consciously commit this horrible atrocity against somebody else and also trust in the forgiveness of sins. They're, they're kind of mutually exclusive mindsets. Um, so that's, that's why that, that wouldn't work. I'll continue this guy's question. This was already asked to a Christian scholar, and he claimed that Christians wouldn't kill or do diabolical sins. Therefore, the argument is invalid, but I'm sure many Christians who sin... Uh, but then surely any Christian who sins is no longer a Christian, since a true Christian, quote-unquote, uh, would... Uh, wouldn't sin whether they have faith in God or not. Okay, so I kind of uh, addressed this already. Um, I, maybe I should have let him finish his point before I before I answer. The concept of, 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 yes, Christians struggle with sins and maintain their faith. But there are some sins that a Christian cannot do while simultaneously having faith. That They're, they're mutually exclusive. The claim is not that as a Christian you will never again sin. The claim is that as a Christian... Your sins are forgiven, and your desire will be conformed to not wanting to sin. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter seven. That is that his flesh desires. It's he's got this this um, this duality of, of flesh versus spirit. The spirit of God dwells within him, and the spirit does not want to sin, but the flesh continues to want to sin. I continue to want these potato chips, so I know that they're not good for me. So my will is conflicted against the will of my my flesh, and this is unfortunately the the Christian the Christian struggles. Um, okay, and then again, I'm scrolling down for this question, and there's there's a bunch of really good answers uh, given by some of the representatives for this for this question. All right, uh, next question is how do I stop sinning? You'll you'll see that this is probably one of the questions that comes up uh, to me uh, a lot, the most. In fact, how do I stop sinning every day? It seems like I sin more. I feel like I will never stop, no matter what I do. And then I'm going to add this part. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, read Romans 7. Read specifically the end of, of Romans 7. Paul talks about this concept of struggling against sin. This is the Christian struggle as well. Paul is a Christian that while he was writing about his struggle with sin, contrary to the fruit check people, you don't stop sinning once you become a Christian. The Christian struggles with sin. So while your desire is good that you stop sinning, you're... The mentality you have should not be, well, I need to stop sinning so that I can be saved. The mentality should be, thanks be to God that Jesus died on the cross and forgave me for all my sins, and I would like to stop committing them now since I have been saved. I would like to stop committing sins. How do I stop sinning? The answer to this question is, is you go to heaven. You die and you go to heaven. And then you're, uh, and then on the last day when your body is resurrected, it will be perfected and no longer driving you to sin. You'll be free from temptation and free from sin as well. All right, on to the next question. This person asks, what is your opinion on abortion? If the baby had bubble boy disease or whatever, would you abort it out of love because a child isn't going to be suffering? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that bubble boy disease is like a real diagnosis, but sure, I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, and, and the question is, is no, I, I would not. Um, there, there are is no way to avoid suffering while you're in the life. If, if, if you want, if you expect that your child is going to somehow live a life without suffering at all, uh, you're, 
you're not living in the same world that, that we are. You suffer. Whoever you are that's listening to this, you are suffering. Now, could that suffering hypothetically be relieved by you being dead? Yeah, I mean, sure. This Why would this stop applying once a person... Once a person is born, I mean, if somebody, we see somebody suffering, you know, by this logic, wouldn't the loving thing be to go and put them out of their misery by just, by just killing them? And I mean, who's to set that standard for, for how much suffering uh, results in the death penalty? People need to be put to death after they have a certain degree of suffering. But the reality is that abortion, abortion is murder. It's the, it's the unwarranted taking of a human life. Uh, This is both biologically true and morally true. Now, biology doesn't determine morality. Morality is determined by a moral lawgiver. Now, this has to come from, you know, a creator, a source of all things, and God specifically says that murder is immoral. Uh, In this case, the person in the womb has done nothing to deserve the death penalty. uh, Therefore, killing them is murder. It is is not just ending a life, but it is maliciously, it is... um, it is immorally ending ending a life, uh, even if your desire is to help them by by preventing them from suffering. Uh, that's it's still it's still wrong, um, and uh, that's that's not so much my opinion on abortion. It's just a, a fact that I happen to be aware of that that I'm sharing with you. Um, but the abortion question it could it could easily have its own its own podcast episode. Uh, so I'm not going to get into any further detail beyond that. All right, next question. Why do some people blur the images of Jesus? This person asks, I've seen some edits on TikTok about praising our King Jesus. They seem to blur out his eyes. Any reason why do people do it to respect him? Now, um, as one of the people responding to this question puts it, they see it as as, um, as honoring as the honoring of the commandment uh, not to make any graven images. Now, depending on your denomination, you'll actually break up the commandments, the Ten Commandments, um, differently as a lutheran we do it properly we say the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me and that we that this includes making a graven image and it isn't just that making an image of something a depiction of something say for example making angels on uh on top of the ark of the covenant that this is itself sinful but the problem is that when people would bow down and worship uh worship these these graven images worshiping the creation rather than the creator that we'd say that that's that that's sinful but the the issue is that some people see that the depiction, visible depictions of uh, cre- either created beings or God Himself, uh, that this is that this is itself immoral. That God, you cannot depict the infinite with the finite, uh, and, and this is why you have some even religions like uh, like Islam, where you cannot depict. You're not supposed to depict Muhammad. There's not supposed to be a visual depiction of, of Muhammad. Uh, there's other there's other Christian denominations that kind of take a similar approach. Um, I don't want to confuse it with iconoclasm. It's it's related, but it's not exactly the same thing. But the reason people blur images of Jesus, the same reason people censor the the name Yahweh or censor the word God, like the, like the word Jehovah is is a censoring of the word Yahweh. Jehovah is not in the Bible anywhere it's a word that people came up as like a stand-in for god's holy name it is not a name of god it is a name that people came up with so they wouldn't say god's name their idea being that if they depict if they depict god or they say his name that inevitably they'll be doing it with some tinge of sin therefore uh, they want to avoid sin so they avoid depicting uh, god or saying his name altogether um 
All right, this next person asks, he says, how do I know I'm not a lukewarm Christian? He says, I still need help knowing this because I feel I have not created a good relationship with God. Well, the fact of the matter is you do not create a good relationship with God. God creates a good relationship with you, and he does this by dying on the cross for your sins. The difficulty a lot of Christians struggle with is they look inwardly, they look at their own actions, and they say, well, I can't tell that I'm a Christian because I'm not living up to a standard, uh, a visible standard. But the fact of the matter is that no Christian lives up to the standard that God requires of them. This is why the death of Christ and the cross is so important, because it pays for our inadequacy. It pays for our deficiency uh, in our faith. So how do you know that you're... So look at it like this. Are you a Christian or aren't you a Christian? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins, that Jesus is Lord? You know, throw in the entire Nicene in here if you'd like to. Do you, do you believe in that? Uh, another easy way is, did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? Are you baptized? Have you been given faith? Uh, as a Lutheran, I could say, yes, I am a Christian. I know I'm a Christian because I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I've been baptized. These things have been given to me. I have been made a Christian not of my own works, but because of what God does for me and that God did to me through, through baptism. Um, and because of that, while I wish to stop sinning, while I wish to have more good fruit, it's not those things that I look to for, for confidence in my, in my salvation. All right. Another question says, money. Is it okay to pursue money while pursuing God? Like, can I be a successful person with a lot of money and still live in the Word? I know that it says that we cannot worship two gods, for you will love one and hate the other, but I want to be fully free from the world and be with God. I also want to be successful so I don't have to work a nine-to-five. Is that okay? Now, one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible is... Um, is money is the root of all evil. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is the loving of money, particularly the idolization of money, loving money more than, than you should, more than God. Trusting in your money, in your grain silos, more than you trust in God, uh, that leads to all kinds of evil. If you trust in money, you're, you'd be willing to do do all kinds of other sins to, to collect more money. Whereas if you trust in God, then you'd be willing to even lose money and trust that God will still take care of you. So it is absolutely okay to be filthy, stinking rich and a Christian. These two things actually happen quite frequently. They happen in the Bible. I believe it's Lydia, the, uh, the, the one, I think she makes like purple dye or something like that in, in the New Testament in the Acts of the Apostles. And she supports the church with her finances. Uh, I believe uh, John Mark's, in, in, again in the New Testament, John Mark's um, mother or grandmother or something like that, uh, she ends up supporting Jesus in the ministry. Uh, Peter's mother or mother-in-law, Jesus ends up hanging out at, at their house fairly frequently to the point where you're like, oh, okay, well, at least they can afford to have, have guests over regularly. Um, so it's not that money itself is evil, but if money takes priority in your life or anything else in your life takes priority over your faith, over God, then that's when it becomes evil. And this can include other good things. So money is a good thing. It is a blessing from God to be used uh, for God's intended purposes. So are children. Children can be an idol. You can be obsessed with your children and say, well, 
I want to take my kids to, you know, soccer practice instead of taking them to church because I want them to be a successful soccer player more than I care about God's commandment not to, you know, neglect the, uh, the gathering of saints. Uh, same thing can, can happen with marriage. A wife can be an idol. Uh, any good thing that you take and you place in greater priority uh, over God becomes an idol. So that's, that's, why, that's why money is off. The love of money often leads to all kinds of evil. Um, because people do that, not because money itself is toxic and should be avoided at all costs. All right, one final question. Somebody asks, what are actions that only God may do? This person says, many responses to the miracles of different religions is alleging demons cause the miracles to deceive people. What are miracles that a demon could not do? Uh, only God. What did Christ, uh, uh, did the Christ do these miracles? What in reverse can demons do? What is the extent of their abilities? This is, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty in-depth question. Uh, there's demonic activity that's, uh, some of it is, is talked about, for example, in the Old Testament. This is the sorcerers in Pharaoh's court are able to perform some miracles. Even in the New Testament, it talks about people coming to try to deceive, if possible, even the elect. It talks about people coming and performing miracles. And actually, miracles is uh, signs, performing miraculous signs, performing uh, feats. Um, there's, I think it's... I think his name is Robert Bennett. I might be confusing him for somebody else. This is this Lutheran pastor in Madagascar, and he talks about uh, the the demonic possession is just rampant in Madagascar. And a lot of this is relating to witch doctor culture. And what will happen is the de the demons will uh, afflict a person with some sort of malady. They'll, they'll make somebody blind, for example, or they'll create lesions on their skin. And then the person will come to the witch doctor and wow, miraculously the person is healed. Now demons do not have the power to heal. If you go and you break your foot, a demon can't heal that. But if a demon causes an affliction, it can take away that same affliction that was caused. Now, if it causes an affliction and then takes it away, people can be convinced that this is a demonstration of a healing miracle. Uh, whereas only God has the power over life and death. Only God can, can raise the dead. Only God can truly heal and truly do these things. Now, sorcery can be very convincing. There are many things that can be done that that approximate actual miracles. There are people who will show up and claim to be Christ and claim to be, you know, apostles and, and, and claim to be part of some religion or some church or whatever. And they can do, they can do some, some pretty amazing signs. Uh, now, the way that we test these things is not to say, wow, that was an impressive sign. You know, David Blaine sure is, you know, sure is sent from God or whatever. Or, you know, Penn and Teller, these guys are definitely, <laughs> these guys are definitely apostles. It's not, it's not, it's not, anything in and of the sign, but it's, what are they teaching? Compare what they are teaching to what the Word of God teaches. Are they teaching something contrary to the, the message once, given, once for all given to the saints? Uh, we've got the Bible. This is one of the beauties of having, having Scripture, is that we can take somebody who, no matter how many miracles happen, if you know this person claims to be a saint and, they, and they're manifesting all these miracles and stuff, if they're claiming to be a saint or an apostle or a prophet, and what they're teaching is contrary to the Word of God, then they are not. They are not God's prophet slash apostle slash you know whatever saint whatever. Uh, this is how we do it. We test. We test what we do not know against what we do know. It's it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a, a counterfeit, a counterfeit money. So if you've got counterfeit money, the way that you know that money is counterfeit is you test it in every way that you can against that which you know that is real. You have that which is real, that which is true, that is the Bible. So you test that which you don't know against that which you do know, against the truth. And if it falls short, 
then you can reject it. You can throw it away and say, well, look, no. Uh, the Bible has a pretty harsh standard for prophets. If you're wrong in one prophecy, there's no oopsie do-overs. You're, you're not a prophet, period. That's it. And then, of course, the Old Testament, it says that you stone them, but that was kind of a law in that society. So don't go around and stone all the false prophets that you see on YouTube. Um, yeah. Anyways, I hope you guys all enjoyed this. Please let me know if you'd like to see more content, if you'd like to ask questions like these in the future, or if you'd like to see how some of the other people from other denominations responded to the questions, and they are good responses to the questions. I'm just not going to read them because I didn't write them. Then go over to, to discord.gg forward slash Christian, discord.gg forward slash Christian. When you join, follow all the rules and go to the Ask Christians forum channel and you'll see all kinds of questions and answers uh, in that forum anyways i hope this was a benefit to you guys again if you'd like to see more uh, let me know god bless you all and take care